0: I'd like to invite you to find your seats, if you haven't already, and turn with me to the Gospel of, get ready, Luke. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. And I say that because we've been in Matthew forever, uh, but we're going to do a a little change up this morning. So if you turn to Matthew, Luke, and you turn to chapter 5 in particular of the Gospel of Luke, and start in Verse 27 will be in sync. So Luke 5, 27. We have red Bibles underneath your chairs if you don't have your own. And if you're using one of those Bibles and you'd like to follow along, you can find this passage on page 861. So once again, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you haven't heard, Grace Central Grandview is launching into Hope Presbyterian Church. The past two weeks, we've been unpacking that as a gift to everybody who has come and not gone on vacation. But if you haven't heard, uh, we, uh, Grace Central is multiplying into two churches, not just two congregations anymore, but now two churches. And so what we're doing over the summer is we're taking a break from the Gospel of Matthew so that I can share the mission, the vision, and the values of Hope Church. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are as well. And last week, if you were with us, I shared why we're naming our church Hope. And I prayed at the time that Hope would become more than just merely hope in name, but that somehow God would answer his prayer that God would answer the prayer of Romans fifteen thirteen in our midst, which goes like this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And that will be our prayer. That the God of hope would make it by his Holy Spirit, would make this space and would make our community a place that is flooded with hope. Not just any hope, but hope that is anchored in Jesus and his promises. This morning, I would like to share with you Hope's vision. And to do that, we need to read Luke 5, starting in verse 27. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 27 begins, After this he went out, that is, Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi, that is, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. But those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Why don't we just pray before we start? Father, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts together, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that when these words go forth from this broken man to all of our broken hearts. We would receive not just information, but that we would receive you, Lord Jesus, and so that we could be transformed. That's our prayer that we would not leave this moment unchanged. It's frightening, Lord, even to consider that your word It's not neutral. It either hardens, our hearts either harden to it or soften to it. We actually we just pray for mercy and for grace that your Holy Spirit would soften us to it. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Do you remember what it felt like to go to school in the last six weeks of school, school year? Think back. Do you remember what that felt like to go to school when you knew it was wrapping up? I knew what it was like. It was like attending something without, and the question constantly in my mind was always, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I would drive to school, or maybe you took the bus. Why am I doing this? Why are we, we call it senioritis, right? And you can have senioritis even when you're not a senior. But this feeling doesn't end in high school. Many of you maybe feel the same way in your jobs. You're sitting in a meeting, and you're saying, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? The same feeling that you have driving to school the last, say, three weeks of school is that same exact feeling you have today sitting in your job or maybe sitting at home or maybe driving your kids to art class or to soccer class. You're thinking, I know I'm faithfully doing the things I'm supposed to faithfully do, but why? Why again? Why am I here? What's wrong? Well, in all these instances, you are suffering from a lack of vision. Someone once described vision as a picture of the future that produces passion. A picture of the future that produces passion. And so in all of those instances, we're sitting in class, we're sitting at work, we're sitting around the dinner table, and there's no picture of the future that is producing passion. And I find the most dangerous possible thing is for that to be happening here. We're faithfully attending. We're faithfully coming. And maybe the feeling that you had driving here matches all too closely the feeling that you have driving to school those last few days of school. Why am I doing this again? What's the point? Where are we going? I know I'm supposed to be here, but why again? I believe God gave us a vision for hope I'm excited to share it. And I think he gave it to us the best possible way. Something, a picture of the future that if he's good to us would produce passion in our place this morning and for as long as we exist. And I think that he gave us this vision in the best possible way, as I said, and that is in his word. And in particular, as we were marching through Matthew, and when we hit Matthew 9, We saw a picture that produces passion in me, and I trust it will produce passion in you as you dream about what we could be and what God might have for us. So what is it? Well, we read Luke's account of this picture just a few minutes ago. And it's a simple picture of Matthew's house after he encounters the welcome of Jesus And I believe God gave us this picture months ago as we were marching through Matthew as a vision of what this little church could one day continue to be. That we might look, that we might taste, that we might feel like Matthew's house on that day. And so the question I have is this for all of us, and to use our redemptive imaginations together, what would it feel, taste, look like to be in Matthew's house on that day? What would have been absolutely, undeniably noticeable if you were in the walls of his house on that day? Well, three things, briefly. You would notice Jesus. You would notice changed lives. And you would notice gospel hospitality. Matthew's house is not Matthew's house First, without Jesus. It's not. The Matthew's house that we read of in this passage in Luke and in Matthew chapter 9 is not Matthew's house without Jesus. In verse 27 it says, After this Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi, which is Matthew's name, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything he rose and followed him. And then what happened in verse 29? Levi made him a great feast feast. In his house. And so Matthew is welcomed by Jesus. He becomes a Jesus follower. And then the very next day. He cooks a meal. But I love the detail. In verse 29. It is not just any meal. But what is it? It is a great feast for him. He made him a great feast. This happens when people encounter Jesus. Jesus. They do costly things for Jesus without counting the cost. It doesn't say he made a, a meal. He says actually he made a banquet, a feast. I'm mindful of the gospel account where Mary breaks her ointment, her life savings over Jesus and doesn't think twice. And do you remember the disciples grumbled? They were like, just like the Pharisees in our text this morning, that's a waste of money. Do you realize what we could do on the, in the church budget with that money? And what does Jesus say? Oh, no. He rebukes them and he says, well, whenever the gospel goes out and is believed, it will be in her honor. Why? Because my gospel is a gospel of costly love. And when my people taste and experience that costly love, they respond in costly ways without, especially without counting the cost. It's amazing. Some of you may have heard of, the artist, Makoto Fujimura, who's a, who's a Christian believer, and he uses the most costly materials in his paintings. And when asked why he does that, why he uses the most costly gold in his paintings, he points to the story of Mary, breaking ointment over Jesus. And he says, worship is a waste. Worship is spending yourself. Without mind of what is spent. It's extravagant because the gospel is extravagant, because God is extravagant in sending Jesus. And so if you were to visit this house, this Matthew's house, what would you notice? Picture it in your mind. What would you notice? Be there, smell it, experience it. What would you notice? I think what you would notice is somebody wasting all of their time, all of their stuff, for Jesus. I think you would notice what Marva Don calls a royal waste of time. An unhurried banquet for the God they love. So yes, I have a vision for hope and it's this, that we will be a community that gathers on Sundays, that scatters throughout the week in our homes throughout the week and in these spaces we are spending our lives on Jesus. We are making a banquet, whatever that looks like. And not just a banquet, but a banquet for the Lord. And we're not counting the cost. So if anybody stepped into our church or into our living rooms, they would not first notice our morality. They would not first notice our church functions. They would not first notice our teaching or our decorations. What would they notice? They would notice Jesus because he's the guest of honor. And he is the sort of awkward object of all of our life spending. And the moment that stops, the moment somebody comes into this house and they don't experience that is the moment we stop being. Jesus, What else would you notice? Well, you would notice changed lives. Matthew, who just yesterday in the text was a tax collector for the empire, uh, clocking in and clocking out without a care in the world. Maybe he thought he was too far gone for God's love. After all, he was extorting and taking advantage of and exploiting God's own special people as a tax collector. So maybe he thought he was too far gone But what happens? Well, verse 27 happens. Jesus went out and saw him with his eyes, saw him, laid his eyes on him, loved him, and said, follow me. And then Matthew leaves everything, it says, and rises, no small word, rises and follows him. That is a death and a resurrection that the welcome of Jesus enacts. The welcome of Jesus enacts a death and a resurrection in the life of Matthew. He leaves everything, dies, and then the text says, rises and follows. Leaving his calloused life behind, death, and rising and following, resurrection. That's what hope does. That's what hope in Jesus does it kills and it raises. It takes us by surprise, and then it changes us holistically, all of us. My wife and I recently read uh, Graham Greene's novel, The End of the Affair, which I've heard the movie is a terrible version of. So when I'm recommending this book, I'm not recommending the movie, even though I've not seen it. The book is amazing. It's an astounding book. It's a love story. But it's not like most love stories. It's a love story of one woman named Sarah and two others fighting for her love. Their names are Maurice Bendrix and God. And spoiler alert, God wins. I devoured this book over vacation, and I told my wife Josie that she had to read it. I wanted to talk about it with somebody, with someone, and she had this great insight after she got done reading. And she pointed out how Sarah's husband was always in the dark about her adultery. But when she started to pray for the first time, she started, he started to notice change in her life that made him suspicious of something or somebody. Her prayer for the first time was this. I'll just read it to you. It's She prays, I knelt. Well, she writes about this time. She says, I knelt and put my head on the bed and I wished I could believe. Dear God, I said, Why dear, why dear? Make me believe. I can't believe. Make me. I can't do anything of myself. Make me believe. Friends, that's a believing prayer. And it changed her noticeably. Hope is transformative. Hope changes. It makes change noticeable. And so, yes, I have a vision for hope that others would be in the space and notice change happening in our lives. Because this is a house where we would celebrate changed lives. As I imagine hope down the road, I see this as a space, and I see our living rooms as sacred spaces where hope is celebrated, where change is noticed. I can see people registering. Can you imagine it? People registering in their minds and in their hearts for the first time in their whole lives that the church is not a place for people who have it together, but exactly the opposite, for people who do not have it together and who are crying out to Jesus instead of trusting in themselves. And in doing so, it's a glorious picture of Matthew's house. Where Jesus says, I came not for those who think they have it together, but I came for those who know they don't. And Jesus is there in power. We're sick. We're sinners. And that changes us when we lay hold of Jesus. So we would notice changed lives. And then finally, and beautifully, we would notice what I'm calling gospel hospitality. It's striking that Matthew's very first evangelistic impulse after being welcomed by Jesus is making a meal. Isn't that amazing? He encounters Jesus, and he starts reading theology books. No. He encounters Jesus, and he starts learning about apologetics. No. He encounters Jesus, and he goes to seminary. No. He encounters Jesus and takes a few classes on how to share your faith. No, he encounters Jesus and cooks a meal and invites his friends over and invites Jesus. Notice, he does not think, all right, now that I've met Jesus, I need new friends. He says instead, now that I've met Jesus, my friends need to meet him too. And he does this in, I think, simple intuitive, loving ways. Matthew's house is the only lesson we need in evangelism. Invite your friends and Jesus to your life. The other day I was making homemade pizza for the first time. For all my bread making, I've never made crust, and I was trying to make crust. And Jude, our oldest son, walked up from the, ki- uh, from the basement to the kitchen, and he just, in passing, said, oh, that smells great, Dad. That smells great. And it reminded me of this quote that I love that I read years ago from a children's author, which I'll quote in full to you now. This author says, imagine being taken over to somebody's some family's home and being told in advance, this is key, that this family had really tapped into a deeper and truer and more beautiful way of relating to each other. But then, when the front door opens, all you smell are stale socks and a little pyramid of cat poo in the corner. (laughs) The smell itself is already an argument against everything you've been told about these people and anything they might have to say to you. But, now he's having you imagine another scenario, and I want you to imagine it too. Imagine that a door opens. Imagine that the door opens to Hope Presbyterian. Imagine that that door opens and you get hit, like my son Jude did. You get hit with the smell of baking bread. You're now prepared to react differently, aren't you? This is not to say that the wonderful smell establishes truth on its own, but it is a testifying witness to the truth. If we Christians have the truth and that truth is beautiful, he goes on, more beautiful than any other message of religion out there, and then we present it in stammering, clumsy, irreverent, and ugly, and bad-smelling ways, we're hypocrites. We're living unfaithfully to the truth. But if we live in a state of celebration and joy and gratitude and if our words and our art and our presentations of that truth hit people like the smell of baking bread, then we're getting somewhere. So may hope smell like freshly baked bread in every way possible. By God's grace. May we weekly gather In worship so that God could train us in this state of celebration, joy, and gratitude. And may we also learn how to grieve and to lament. And in doing so, would would folks enter into this space and experience gospel hospitality. Where we are simply, in all the ways we know how, responding to Jesus in our midst. In existing for the sake of those who come in who are not members. Everything that you do to set the table at home for visitors, we're doing here. Let's take our cues from Matthew. I think we overthink mission. I think we're called, the scriptures are clear, to share our hope with others. That's called evangelism. But I think we overthink it Sometimes. Do what's intuitive, okay? Invite your social network into that, and then invite Jesus. That's the key. And if you are an authentic soul, as I hope this church is training you to be, he will come up in your conversations because we are hopeless without him. And we can bring our struggles and be honest about our struggles with our our friends and our social network and the more authentic we are about our struggles, the more they'll see and hear about Jesus and hopefully smell the fresh bread of the gospel. Amen? Hope can be Matthew's house. This church can be Matthew's house. I think God is already working in our midst and has been for years. Do you want it to be? Do you want it to be? Do you want to take part in this? Well, what can you do? Well, as we build this house, I want Psalm 127 to be our blueprint, which some of you may know already. For those of us who don't, let's remind ourselves, unless the Lord builds a house, Those who build it labor in vain. And when we launched Great Central Grandview almost six years ago, that was the verse that we preached on. And nothing is changing, friends. For this house to be built, the Lord has to build it. And so what is the posture of all of us who want to take part in this? The posture has to be that of prayer. The foundation of Matthew's house is the foundation of prayer. Prayer is how the house is built. And so what we are going to be doing over the summer is praying. I encourage you to pray by yourselves and with your families and with your friends for the building of this house. But we're also going to be carving out time as a community to pray. So. In mid-August and mid-September, we'll be suspending our home groups, and we'll be meeting on Sunday evenings, if you are able. And we'll do this old-school potluck thing, right, a la Matthew's house. And we're going to pray. We're just going to pray. You don't have to come, but I hope you want to. Because we're going to pray like we've never prayed before. Everybody can do that. And I believe that if we are a praying community, then the rest Will follow. So here's the vision. It's Matthew's house. May our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children walk into Hope Presbyterian Church and get smacked in the face with the smell of baked bread. For Jesus' name, would they see Jesus? Would they see changed lives? And would they experience the welcome of Jesus? Let's pray.